Blog Talk Radio. Talk Radio Program. I'm Susan Larison Dance, and I welcome you all here today at a time when I know that in our hearts, um, our hearts are really going out to the people in California. And and by the way, yesterday we talked about the world situation a little bit, and it's really important to to expand our compassion consciously to the entire world and to be agents of change on this planet. And today, we are going to be talking to Stefan A. Schwartz, and I'm so happy that he will be with us in just a moment on the line. And he is the author, for those of you who heard the show yesterday, in fact, I invite you to listen to yesterday's show where we introduced some of this material and explored some of it a little, Um, Stefan is the author of The Eight Laws of Change, How to Be an Agent of Personal and Social Transformation. This is his most recent book. Um, Stefan has an amazing background, truthfully. Um, He has been involved with significant social movements over several decades, um, including the Civil Rights Movement. He has spent 40 years studying consciousness He has studied the patterns of social transformation, and he is going to talk to us today about how individual choices make a real difference and that there is evidence of this when you study social change. And those of you who haven't heard the news right coming into the show, I will will tell you that there was a news conference just a half an hour ago where the FBI said that they are now investigating, um, and I'll quote, um, these horrific acts as an act of terrorism, what's going on in California, and that, quote, there was, well, these two words, extensive planning is the quote. Um, And so we are, those of you who heard that, as I did, we are integrating this information into our psyches right now and into our hearts. I want to tell you a little bit more about Stefan before I bring him on the air here. Um, his background is is truly so comprehensive. He has held many significant appointments throughout his career, um, both in government and in research. Um, he is currently a distinguished consulting faculty member at Saybrook University. He's a research associate of the, the Laboratories for Fundamental Research. 
He's written other books as well, more than 100 technical papers. He's written for several prominent publications such as Smithsonian, Omni, American History, um, the Washington Post, the New York Times, and his website is stephanaschwartz.com, and he also has what many of you are probably familiar with, his Schwartz Report site as well. So without further delay, I, I feel so very honored and thankful to be bringing Stefan Schwartz on the Frontier Beyond Fear. Welcome, Stefan. Thank you very much, Susan. I appreciate it. Glad to be with you. Well, it seems that you are here at a rather pivotal moment um, in the sense that, that we really are integrating. I mean, really, not only just this latest incident, I think many of us are still working through what happened in France and just what's happening worldwide and and, you know, before that, thinking about these refugees, there's so much going on, Stefan, right now. How do we respond as individuals? How can we approach this? Well, I think you're quite correct. We're, we really are sort of going through the vortex of change, and it becomes ever more important about our individual choices and behaviors and attitudes because uh, if you study social change you can see that there really is no force on the planet that is more powerful than the collective intention of of a large group of individuals so what the the individual choices that we make become very important because by those choices, we define our beingness, the nature of our character, and collectively, as a groups, we define what we want the culture to become. Yes, yes. You know, something that, that came to me as I was reading your book, Stefan, is how you mentioned the Quakers more than once and and the influence of the Quakers and how how the Quakers would respond to different situations. And I think it's so easy. You know, this is a show here about fear, um, although really it's it's evolved in how to understand fear, how to how to use fear as a catalyst, how it's how do we as individuals steer our ways towards peace in without being in a space of being driven by fear. Well I can tell you um I will I will give you a formula which if just the people who are listening to your show at this moment yeah would carry out would commit to we could change the course of American history I I you know I say this and it sounds either grandiose or or unbelievable it can't possibly be true but uh, I do assure you, when you look at uh, all the social changes that have occurred over the last century, yeah. you can see the evidence very clearly. You know, I don't really, I don't really care very much about politics or partisanship or political theories and all that. I'm a data person, and so what I want to know is, if you create certain kinds of social policies, what kind of social outcomes do you get? Key to creating wellness-oriented social policies, and by wellness, I mean everything you think I mean, uh, but more, 
And I'm speaking of wellness at the individual, the familial, the community, the nation, and the planet itself. We have the ability to create wellness-oriented change, and here's how to do it. And it's mm-hmm. really so simple that it's most people find it hard to believe it actually would work, but I'll give you examples of when it yeah. has worked. Um, and so this is it. First of all, you have to become aware that you make hundreds of choices through the course of the day. When you go into the market to buy a tube of toothpaste or some shampoo or some breakfast food, whatever, you know, most people don't even think about that as really a decision point. They just buy whatever their mothers showed them to use or their college roommate used or or the guy at work with them uses, or whatever. I mean, you just sort of get into the habit of using one thing or another. So it's not really a conscious decision. So the first step is you have to make it a conscious decision. You have to be aware that every time you buy something, you're voting for a corporation with your pocketbook, and you want to know whether that corporation is a life-affirming corporation. Do they treat their people well? Uh, are they notably polluters? Do they try to distort American democracy? I mean, you you have to do a little research on these things, but uh, but there it's out there. I mean, it doesn't. It's not that hard to do. My wife goes in and she has a list of the when we go to the market of uh-huh. companies whose products are not wellness oriented and kind of companies that are. So first of all, you have to. Be aware you're making a decision. And then of the options that are available to you, you consistently pick the one which is uh, the most compassionate, life-affirming, and productive of wellness. Now, none of the decisions may be good decisions. We're often in circumstances where the decisions we have to make are sort of the choice between the bad and the worst, But nonetheless, inevitably, one decision is more compassionate, life-affirming, and wellness-producing than the others. The one you pick, whether it's toilet paper or what automobile you buy or or, uh, what stocks you buy or what light bulbs you buy, every one of those things is a choice, and it represents a vote of values. So the first thing is you have to be aware of this, and second, of the options that are available to you, you consistently choose the option that is compassionate, life-affirming, and most productive of wellness. And the second thing you do is you tell people you're doing this. You tell 10 friends that you're doing it, and you invite them to join you in this process, in taking this pledge and that they will do the same and that they will ask 10 of their friends. Well, now just, you can do the math very quickly. If you have just, let's make it a very tiny number. If you have a thousand people who hear this show and make this decision, I mean, I know your audience is bigger than that, but, but let's just say of all the people that are going to hear this interview, a thousand of them say, okay, I will do this. And they begin to make these kinds of compassionate, life-affirming choices and tell 10 friends. Well, if they tell 10 friends, now we have 10,000 people. 
And if they tell 10 friends, then we have 100,000 people. And if they tell 10 friends, now we have a million people. And if they tell 10 friends, then we have 10 million people. Now we know how many people you have to get in order to change the behavior of any social organization. It's 10%. Uh, The research is quite clear on this. Whenever 10% of any cohort of people make a decision to take a new path or to change their opinion, the whole cohort, cohort tips. So if we just talk about the people that vote, as an example, yeah. uh, we're talking about roughly 24 million people to get 10%. And so, uh, as you can see, in about six jumps, we can do that. Yeah. And between now and November this uh, November 2016, if just the 1,000 people that listen and respond to this uh, will do this, by the time we get to November 2016 and everyone commits to vote, That be, the problem being that social progressives and wellness-oriented people tend not to vote, if they will vote, we can change the outcome of the election. I mean, this... I know it sounds almost impossibly simple, but it isn't, and it does work. And as I say, I'm happy to give you some examples. Yes, I think that that it's really easy for people to say, you know, what what difference can I make? You know, that um, what difference can I make? And and um, I know that that I've observed that you don't you don't see it as much. Actually, with with these sorts of shows and with a lot of opportunities online, I'm starting to notice that just individuals putting their voice out there. I mean, there are a lot of voices that are not consistent with compassion and wellness out out on the internet. Certainly are. And and if sometimes I think um, that that even if people like like with this show, for example. Um, I think that that on Blog Talk Radio, we never know, you know, how if they're just people who hear just a tiny snippet of it, you know, and and does that change them just that little bit, you know, just well, just I mean, it does. How do we know? Yeah. Well, let me give you an example. About oh, it's about fifteen months now, maybe eighteen months. There was a shift in the country's consciousness about gender. And you can yes. see this shift in the shift from saying gay to saying LGBT. Now, the president didn't go on the television and say, from now on, we're going to do this. The Supreme Court didn't issue an edict about this. Uh, the media didn't take up a campaign about this, calling for people to do it. What happened was individuals, just full like those listening to this show or you or I, made a decision that when they would have said gay, they would say LGBT. And that's not just a change of term, that's also a change of concept. It requires rethinking what we mean by gender orientation. And so if you go and do a Google word search, you can see that this thing gathered steam. It, I mean, you know, it started small and it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And now most of the time when you read something or you hear something on the television, you hear LGBT, not just gay. That's a shift in consciousness. Another one that we are pretty familiar with, when I was a boy, 
and you went to somebody's house, inevitably there was an ashtray and a pack of cigarettes and one of those runs and lighters that people used to have. And um, you saw it on almost every coffee table in America. You never see that anymore. Why? Because individuals made a decision that they were going to quit smoking. They got information that convinced them this was not a good thing to do, and they quit doing it. And so now only a tiny fragment, a fraction of the population in the United States still smokes. Or I'll give you another one. Look at the corporate reports for McDonald's Corporation, the hamburger people. Uh-huh. And what you will see is that in the last year, their sales have been dropping significantly. Indeed, yeah. I saw one report in the business press that they're going to close more franchises than they're going to open. Why? Because the people that go to McDonald's decided, you know, I'd rather eat something a little healthier. I'll go to Chipotle or something like that. And so they stopped buying it. Nobody passed a rule. Nobody had a lot of comment about it in the media. It's just people driving somewhere to catch a quick meal said, nah, I don't think I'll do McDonald's this time. I'll go to whatever. So we see these things, but we don't recognize that they are changes which result not from big government fiats or anything like that, but simply from the decisions, the little quotidian choices, little daily mundane choices that people make during the course of their day. They think about it and say, no, I don't want to do that, I'll do this. And that's exactly what I'm saying. First of all, you have to be aware you're making a choice. And second of all, of the options available to you, you choose the one that is the most compassionate, life-affirming, and productive of wellness. It, it's it's that simple. I mean, it doesn't you know it doesn't require armies. It doesn't require vast wealth. It doesn't require that you have an official position. You simply have to create a strong intention that attracts and share it with other people who also join up with that intention. And when they do, and when there is a collective intention held by enough people, then the entire society changes. Yes. Yes. You know, I had an experience last night, Stefan. Um, I went to a community showing of White Christmas, which sounds very benign on the surface, right? White Christmas, the, you know, the, right. the, the singing, the, the you know, there, there were quite a few people there to watch this old movie. Well, in that movie, there were things that were intolerant of um you know transgender people for example and and when when that came up you saw you felt i noticed the people in front of me kind of looked at each other and it was like a little shudder went through the audience the people who you know tended to be aware that hey you know look at this you know how dated this is and and right. i just i felt the change sitting right there because you could feel the contrast between the times. I don't know. White Christmas was made in the fifties, um, early fifties, fifties musical, and and you know you would think I was watching you know something, um, you know when we hear of things from the South like from long ago and we see oh them, well I mean think about clashed the, with us yeah <laughs> think about the song of the South and Uncle Remus oh that was yes one of the most successful. Disney movies that that they made, uh-huh. and you never see it anymore because 
it was impossibly racist. Yes. Attitudes yes. change, and they, they change not because the government passes laws, but because gr- groups of individuals make a decision they're going to choose differently. You know, if, you fly, if you're in an airplane and you're flying over uh, between the United States and Canada, for instance, and you look down, you don't see a line that says this is the border, like looking at a map. But nobody 50 feet of the border, no American thinks of himself as a Canadian, and no Canadian thinks of himself as an American. And, you know, why is that? We come from a very similar uh, ethnic and racial heritage. Why is it that Canadians and Americans see themselves as very distinct from one another at critical ways? And the answer is it's thousands and thousands of little choices. What music you listen to, what you teach in schools, what churches you go to, what food you eat, how you prepare the food, what sports you follow, all of those things which we hardly give a thought to, but which collectively, those thousands and thousands of little tiny choices that people make are what creates national character. We create national character through this process that I'm describing of these little choices. And when you become aware of that, you realize that great change can be wrought this way. You mentioned the Quakers earlier. Well, there are about there are less than 87,000 Quakers in the United States, a country of about 317 million people. So only about 87,000 of them. Actually, it's less than 86,337 or something if you look at the research data. So it's... A, it's a tiny group. It's so small that most people have never met a Quaker. Many people have never, if they know the name at all, they don't know anything at all about what they believe or or what their worship services would be like or anything. And yet if you look at American history, realizing that in the whole of American history, going back to the colonial period, there have been way less than a million Quakers way less. This is a teeny, tiny little group. And yet, if you look at every major social, progressive, uh, societal transformation, abolition, the end of slavery, uh, women's suffrage, uh, public education, penal reform, the environmental movement, if you look at all of those, when you track them back, as I did in my research, what you discover is that they all began with a little group of Quakers. Now, you don't know their names because they don't make any effort or make any requirement that, uh, that and you know about them. They just simply go about it. And this tiny little group of people have been able, through following these principles that I'm describing, to create massive social and long-lasting societal change. You want to know a coincidence? It's not really a coincidence, but the Quakers influenced me, Stefan. I have been to a non-programmed Quaker church around the time I started this show, and I was the distributor uh-huh. for the War is Not the Answer signs in the Portland area for, for quite a while. They stopped doing those, the yard signs. And so I mm-hmm, had these interactions with, with the Friends Committee on National Legislation, which I'm sure you've probably heard of. 
Sure. And um, and so what are the chances of that? You just said that, you know, there's so few. I can't say I was actually a member, but it really drew me in, and I've many times thought of going again. I, I the, the, the services were, were really quite, in a consciousness way, pretty amazing. Um, well, they're, but medi- they're group well, they meditation. were non-programmed. Yeah. Well, you you do speak, which is interesting. And and um, I have to admit, I got chastised um, for speaking too much. <laughs> I spoke twice. <laughs> yeah, people who know me will laugh at that. But um, I I didn't quite get it as a visitor. I mean, I didn't like speak the whole time. But apparently, you're only supposed to say one thing or, or something. I don't know. But in any case, well, different different meetings are different. <laughs> in but... this group. <laughs> It wasn't like I said a lot. But the thing is, is um, yeah, they had a significant influence on me. Um, and um, and I came from a very conservative background and was searching, you know, for, for other things. And had that church been closer to my home, I'd probably still be going there. It wasn't real close. Nowadays, a lot of the Quaker churches are no longer non-programmed. They're more programmed, and they've become more evangelical and they're not all pursuing the the peaceful aims that that um, not to say there can't be peace in that movement i don't want to be overly critical but they've changed anyway it's just sort of a coincidence or a synchronicity in the sense that yes they influenced me for sure there's no question that that is part of my influence of how i started this this show over um, five years ago Hmm. well i'm glad to hear that uh-huh. Um, that's, uh, I hadn't heard that story, but that's a good one. Well, I've well, never I mean, told it. I mean, if you look at them, yeah, if you look at them, you you look at the history of the Society of Friends over and over. You see this: just ordinary people, just doing what they believe, but being very conscious about what they're doing. And um, I mean, in my latest book, The Eight Laws of Change, I tell the story for instance of how greenpeace was founded yes and yes. it was i mean you know it's now this huge international organization environmental movement that we know and but it began with a couple of quaker couples and four or five media guys up in vancouver so it you know the thing about it is these social movements that are successful I did a lot of research because I got interested particularly in which kinds of social movements are most successful. Mm-hmm. Again, as I said, you know, I'm a data person and so I wasn't interested in the theories and the philosophies. I didn't I mean I read that, but that's not what I'm really focused on. I'm yeah. interested in social outcomes. What happens if you if you apply a certain social policy? Yeah. And and if you look at all of the social transformations that have occurred in the last century, back to the uh, end of the 19th century, up to the present, what you will discover is that although we glorify uh, violent social change, you know, all our statues in the public parks are guys who were commanders of, and generals and things like that, upon horses, but actually violent change only succeeds about 25% of the time. Whereas nonviolent change, compassionate nonviolent change, succeeds 75% of the time. It's a complete reversal. 
So if you really want to create change, you want to create compassionate, nonviolent change. More than that, if you actually look at change that that occurs, whether violent or nonviolent, what you discover is that violent change doesn't last very long. I mean, you know, you look, for instance, at the Soviet Union. I mean, that's a really easy one. Uh-huh. It only lasts, communism only lasted about 70 years, which in historical terms is, you know, an eye blink. I mean, we think of it as this huge force that dominated a lot of our lives, particularly if you're, you know, over 40. But, but the truth is the Soviet Union didn't last very long. Yeah. Um, and the reason it didn't is that when you compel change through violence, you create the seed for the pushback. People get hurt. They get, become resentful. And so violent change doesn't last very long. Nonviolent change, however, as an example, because it is inclusive and because it is more heart-centered and because it is nonviolent, tends to endure. And you can look, for instance, at India. You know, right before Gandhi was assassinated, a reporter asked him, how did you force the most powerful country on earth, the British Empire, the British, how did you force the British to leave the crown jewel of their empire, India? I mean, they'd been here for 300 years. How did you force them to leave? You have no army, you have no public position, you have no money. Yeah. And there's Gandhi sitting there in his little dhoti on in his ashram in the, with a spinning wheel. And Gandhi's response is exactly illustrative of what I mean by this business of beingness, the strategy of beingness. He said, it isn't what we did that mattered, although that mattered. And it isn't what we said that mattered, although that did matter. But it was the nature of our character. Yes that led the British to choose to leave India. Now, notice the difference between force and choose, particularly. How did a man who had no army, no money, and no official position cause the British, at that time the most powerful country in the world, to leave their crown jewel of their empire? And, I mean, the point that he's making is, is that ordinary people made little choices, these little quotidian choices, and as a result, the British chose to leave India. Yes, yes. Stephanie, can you speak to what you observed in the civil rights movement? I find it fascinating that you were present for some fairly, well, not just fairly, some significant events, pivotal events in our history. Yes, Mar- uh, you know, Martin Luther King's uh, I Have a Dream speech. Yes, yes. And, um, uh, and uh, speech in Birmingham, yeah, yeah, I'm was privileged enough to see all of them. And and I will tell you, I remember very clearly walking down Constitution Avenue with thousands of other people walking toward the Lincoln Memorial where he was going to give the I Have a Dream speech. And as I looked over, I saw four partners from one of the largest and most prestigious Republican law firms walking in the street arm in arm, and at that point, I knew we had won. Yes, yes. That the consciousness had changed. This point about when you get 10% of any cohort to change their thinking, then the entire cohort changes. 
and I can still see in my mind's eye walking down the street that day, looking over and seeing these four partners, uh, these four men, conservative Republican white men, walking down the down the Constitution Avenue with me. And I thought, if they're out here and they're headed to the Lincoln Memorial to hear Dr. King give that, then there has been a shift in consciousness, and indeed there there was. Yes, yes. Um, I feel a rather complex question taking form here, and it's because of something that, that I'm personally struggling with, and I think many of us are attempting to 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 figure out what is the best path here. Um, when it comes to what's going on in the world right now, you know, these these acts of terrorism, these things that are happening that, that just, you know, they frighten ordinary people. I mean, they're terror. They they, they do this. You know, yeah. I mean, we can work with our reactions. And, and the question I have is, you know, I feel, and I know you've worked with the military in your life, and, you know, we all... There are so many good people who mean well doing things, you know, with with the best of intentions to help this situation at the same time. And these are good people. I mean, I'm not talking about people who may be trying to profit from You know, that gets really complicated. But I'm talking about the standard, the, the kernel of goodness that is shared among people. And the question becomes, because you know there's all there's so much talk of okay you know we've got the security state coming into place and and there can be some real risk to societies from things like that i mean and i see that and and yet there's well meaning intentions and yet how how do we navigate this how do we how do we incorporate i told you it's going to be a complex question how do we incorporate like you in your um your book, you you mentioned um, Benjamin Franklin's comment. You know, he's given us a republic if we can keep it, and you know that echoes. And you know, many good people with good intentions, not necessarily knowing what is the best way to navigate and feel safe, you know, reasonably safe, and get to the place of peace. You know, what can we do? There's my very complex question because I'm working with this today thinking about the good people that I know who are doing mm-hmm. everything they can to help us and still feeling, you know, just concerned about, you know, what are we doing in society, you know, we could how these mechanisms can can be misused and and it's a concern. So there you go. I'll hand that over to you because I think many of us are working with this and I want to say it in the most peaceful, Quaker-type way possible of how do we find our way. Well, I, 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 I completely agree with you. I mean, we are – you have to recognize that we face probably the greatest changes that humanity has faced, oh, perhaps – Oh, going back to the maybe over 2,000 years. You know, there are periods of time when the consciousness of humanity all over the planet seemed to change. And part of this occur, uh, this occurs because, as the research shows, 
all consciousness is interlinked and interconnected. Yes. I mean, part of the problem that we need to recognize is that we are more than animated meat. Yes. Our the, the scientific view is that uh, the dominant scientific view. It's the failing view. It, it's changing now. That's one of the things that is changing, and for the good. But but for the last um, hundred more years, the general assumption is that consciousness arises from the body, and dead body no consciousness and that we are all locked up inside of our heads and have no way to connect to others except through the defined physiological senses, taste, touch, smell. But the evidence increasingly, and I think overwhelmingly at this point, is that that is a wrong interpretation of reality. Uh, Max Planck, who is the father of quantum mechanics, was asked in 1931, you know, what have you learned? I mean, he was then, along with Einstein and, and Planck and Pauli, you know, these were these great Olympian figures who founded modern physics. And they asked Pauli, you know, what have you learned? And his answer was, what I have learned is that consciousness is fundamental and that materiality and space-time are manifestations of consciousness, not the other way round. That beneath consci- that, the, uh, that consciousness undergirds everything. So if you start from the perspective that that you are more than animated meat, and that all consciousness, from single-celled organisms to high-order mammals like ourselves, are all interlinked and interdependent in a great matrix of life then your whole worldview changes because you no longer see the earth as an exploitable bank account, you know, that you can extract yeah. things from it and you don't need to worry about the consequences and and um, that instead what you're dealing with is this great meta-system, the, the Gaia, as, as James Lovelock called it, you know, this great living meta-organism that is the earth and you and you realize that you are linked into that matrix you're just one little piece of it but that you both inform it and are informed by it and once you see it from that perspective and you see this interconnection and interdependence then you realize that the little choices that you make if you can put fear aside and make your decision not on the basis of fear, but on the basis of what will produce life-affirming, compassionate wellness. You make that the first priority. You can make all the money you want, but you must do it creating wellness, not degrading wellness. You know, you run a coal company and you're trying to dig coal out of the earth and um, you're burning coal and putting CO2 into carbon into the atmosphere, that is not producing wellness. So the first thing you want to look at is, is what I am doing and are the organizations with which I am associating myself productive of wellness? 
And if you start from the production of wellness and not a reaction to fear, then your whole perspective about what you're doing changes. I mean, the truth is that we are in the face of enormous change. Climate change is coming. It's going to alter our world in ways that we just can't imagine. Our children and grandchildren are going to live in a world, no matter what we do, that will be radically different than the world that you and I and your listeners knew growing up. I mean, that's going to happen. You just yeah. That's, that's going to happen. So, I mean, in the United States, we have one political party who don't even accept that climate change is real and who are doing everything in their power to assure, for instance, that whatever is agreed at these Paris meetings that are going on as we speak, that it won't have any effect, that they'll block it. Uh, just as today and yesterday, um, they, they dis, uh, efforts to create some kind of rational gun control was also blocked. So we need to, the, all of that is coming out of fear. You know, every time one of these mass events occurs, these mass killing event occurs, well, the gun sales go up. Now, actually, if you look at the data, fewer and fewer people own guns, but they own more and more guns because, well, one gun isn't enough. You have to have more guns. They just found uh-huh. a guy who had 5,000 guns in his house. I don't. That made him feel safer, I guess. Um, I'm not quite sure where he slept, if he had five, but nonetheless, <laughs> we, need to, we need to stop operating out of fear. That's the first step. And instead say, I, everything I'm going to choose is going to be productive of wellness. Physical wellness, emotional wellness, mental wellness, you know, however you interpret that wellness will this make things better will people be uh, will they have improved wellness individually familial community nation planet and if you can make your decisions on that basis and not on the basis of fear and hate and anger then you are joining the forces for life and if you allow fear to be the dominant decision-making impulse, then you are supporting the forces of death and darkness. And the choice is ours. We, you know, it says in the Bible, it's set before you this day, the choice uh, that you can make. And the choice that you make is either you serve God, that is you serve harmony, you serve this greater principle of the great meta-system, the great matrix, or... You're serving the smaller, less wellness-producing choices. Set before you this day, good and evil, how do you choose? And that's the option that we all get all the time. And we can do this, but we must not give way to fear and hate. Pick wellness. Yes. I have a question for you, Stephen. Um, As I mentioned earlier, I came from an evangelical background. And during that time, um, I learned a lot about the end times and how people view that. And so um, how do we, um, now, I suppose as an individual, I'm clearly not a part of that movement anymore. And yet, I have an understanding 
of the fears that surround that. So that when you say to someone, pick good versus evil, to them, to them being good may be a fear-based choice, interestingly enough, because they believe in the end times. They believe that the opposition to them, including in government, including in climate change, that there are all these agendas that are literally demonic. I've tried to explain this to people that they don't realize that there are people who really believe it. (laughs) It's hard to explain because I think fundamentalism is actually a form of mental illness that is expressed in a religious context and using religious language but it's it's not a rational position it, I mean, it can't the, be and, and, and it's it's indoctrinated way, I, I, that's, though yeah it's yes, indoctrinated yes, I though in the children yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah of course of course because fear begets fear and yeah. and the, it, irrationality begets irrationality and by the way i want to be very clear I don't mean Christian fundamentalism. I yeah. mean fundamentalism of any kind. In general. Pope Francis said just the other day, fundamentalism is a sickness. Yeah. Now, yeah. The, and, the, and the thing you have to recognize is about 27% of the population, at least that's the research results, have overactive right amygdalas. And the amygdala is a little uh, almond-sized gland in your brain small part of your brain that deals with fight or flight and when it kicks in rational thought stops and overactive amygdalas are highly correlated to extreme conservative religiosity and conservative politics and so you really have to think of these people of the sort of the neurophysiology of the or the psychophysiology of politics that these people are not making rational decisions and they are not thinking rationally. The end times is not a rational belief. Creationism is not a rational belief. It's a belief, I grant you that, but it is not based on rational facts. I've, you know, I once debated at a, at a university, uh, I was the middle person. I was the spiritual but not religious, and the other uh-huh, end was uh-huh. a creationist, and the and the other side was an atheist. And I just, as I listened to them both, I thought the atheist doesn't understand that that when we say spiritual, we are not talking about religious. Yes, religions, you know, are man-made. An individual has a non-local consciousness experience and altered state of consciousness experience and they explain it to other people who get attracted to it and people start talking about it and groups organize around it and dogmas grow up and pretty soon there's priesthoods and but it all date it all traces back to the experience of a single individual who has a non-local consciousness experience of this great matrix, whether you call it God or the priestess or or the great mother or the unity or the whatever word you use, doesn't matter. You you just you have this experience of the whole, and and at the other end was the uh, uh, the creationist. And he was arguing that the world was created 6,000 years ago and uh, without realizing that uh, that 6,000-year date that you see all the time in the 
theocratic rightist literature was actually created by a Bishop Usher, who was a Protestant theologian in Ireland, and he was trying to prove to the Jesuits that he was just as smart as they were, and that's how that's where that all dates back to. But in any case, I finally said to the creationist guy, what's wrong with the speed of light? And he said, well, nothing's wrong with the speed of light. And I said, well, how is it possible that God created the world 6,000 years ago, but when I look up into the sky, I see the light coming from stars that are hundreds of thousands of light years away? Uh-huh. Good, good, and, and his And well, his response to me was, it's one of God's mysteries. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's irrational. It, it's, you're not dealing with rational thought. It's not fact-based. It has, you know, it's... It's a, it's a way of looking at the world. I don't deny it. It's deeply held by many people, but it is not. It's not a rational position that's based on facts, nor is atheism. So yeah. I was the middle guy. I was the spiritual but not religious. Yeah. And that and they asked me, well, what's the difference between spiritual and religious? And I said, religions are man-made. People listen to somebody who's had a spiritual experience and they build up a whole set of dogmas and beliefs around it. Um, and But the core of it is this, is this altered state of consciousness that the individual has experienced. And the reason we call it spiritual is till about 100 years ago, we didn't have another word for that. I mean, that was the only way to think about it. Today we would say non-local consciousness. But 200 years ago, the only way you could talk about these experiences was that God spoke to me, the angels spoke to me. It was a spiritual experience of some kind of connection to a greater whole. And the only way people could think about that was that it was God or the, or the Great Mother or the, you know, whatever. Yes, yes. They had to interpret it in their own way. I have a question That's for right. you. Again, having come from... A, a fundamentalist um, upbringing, and because I'm a little troubled by by something, and I just I I'd like to hope, Stefan, that although at the core there may may be people who are very influenced by the structure of their brains, that there are many who have simply been influenced by either being um, you know having come across this at a very hard time in their lives, I have seen this common when people are really down, or as children. And so what we really have to do is work with the people who, you know, they're they're not physical. I I have a hard time believing that, that, you know, um, everybody that I know who's, who's evangelical has some physical thing that's causing them to be that way, because I think you can dismantle, the fear, and then you can have a wonderful spiritual life like I do, you know. Um, and, and so somewhere in that group there must be people, and this is of all fundamentalisms, I think, where there's tremendous hope that we can transition and realize, hey, it's the love at the center that matters. You know, I was taught God is love. You know, where, and, and the people I, I know, people who navigate evangelicalism, in that way, they think about the love. Well, it's just a small step to to releasing some of the dogma that's based in fear that that maybe was indoctrinated. So, 
So I guess I see hope in that. I just I, I hate to think that that so many that I know are are doomed in a way by their biology um, because I wasn't. <laughs> and, well, and you we weren't, but, and and, um, <laughs> and and it's the stimulation that you know we have an entire media operation in the United States whose central function is is to produce disinformation that engenders yeah. fear. Yeah. And so yeah. if you're constantly, if the only thing you listen to, I, I read a great deal of the theocratic rightist uh-huh. um, websites and publications, and I read all this stuff. Yeah. It is truly a parallel world. And I, yeah, part oh, it of the is. problem I, is, I is, that. is that if you don't belong to that world, you don't read that stuff, you just you hardly can credit that people think about that and things of that way. I mean, it and yet it has a tremendous influence on all kinds of aspects of our life. I mean, you look at, for instance, the Quiverful movement. Uh-huh. I'm sure I'm you're familiar that. with that yes. coming out of yes. yeah. You know, that women don't need to be educated and that yep. they're subordinate to their husbands and that the function of a woman is to have children and stay at home and be submissive to her husband. I mean, there's not a there's not much difference between Christian quiverfulism and the Taliban yeah. in terms of their views about women. Uh, it, they, what you're dealing with is not a rational consideration, but a set of beliefs which arise from issues revolving around power and you know who has authority and all of that sort of thing, and and so it's not. It isn't rational thought. So what we need is to um, help people develop the capacity for rational thought. And if you look at what's going on in our school systems, the increasing attempt to produce willful ignorance, which is a terrific trend in the United States. It's, I mean, I just came back from France. I was in France two days after the, the massacre that occurred in Paris, and I was in Paris, and talking to French people and everything. I mean, what you come away with in that is they they were very brave that they were determined this was not going to disrupt their society, that um, they were simply not going to give way to fear. But in talking to them, um, the experience was very traumatic, and yet I would... I was interviewed by media, and, you know, they would say to me things like, questions like, Mr. Schwartz, uh, we've just had a dreadful event that's occurred in which many died, and yet, and it's, as you can clearly see, has had a huge effect on our country, and yet in the United States, these sort of things happen almost weekly. And um, why is that? How many people a day, one one reporter asked me, how many people a day are killed by guns in the United States? I said, well, the latest figures are 92 a day. Wow. And that's uh, 33,000 a year, more than automobile accidents. And another reporter asked me, how many people are killed by the police? And I said, well, as of this morning, because I had just read it, um, about 950. And they said to me, this was in Norway and uh, on another, a, a trip right before I went to France, and, 
and uh, the the Norwegian engineer that that uh, I w- was talking with said to me, "You know, in Norway we haven't the police haven't shot anybody since ni- 2006, and last year they only shot two bullets. Period. The entire oh national God. police force. And what what is it? Why is it we have guns in in here? And the the French said same thing. We have guns." But we don't kill people like this. And how is what what is going on? And I said it's a matter of culture. It's a matter of consciousness. We yeah. don't think about consciousness as a factor in our politics, but consciousness is a huge factor in how we look at the world. Whether we look at it from a fear-based, you know, or we we think the end times are upon us, premillennial dispensationalist or whether we see opportunity. I mean, you know, you could look at climate change in a completely different way and say the transition out of carbon energy to non-polluting energy will be a huge benefit and will millions of people to work and create great prosperity and that you could see climate change as humanity's opportunity to transform itself. Or... You could say climate change is going to destroy our culture and um, the world as we know it uh, will will degrade very quickly. And, um, you know, or you could say, well, it's just a sign of the end times. Yes. You know, I have a quick question for you. We're getting really close to the end, but I just have to ask you this question. I have heard sure. from both um, – Actually, both sides of this whole debate, and I know you and your book say you've studied over 10,000 studies on climate change. What do you say, Stefan, to any evidence that other planets are changing? Because I've heard that from other places. Not saying that there isn't human involvement in this, but that there's also an added contribution. This is the way I would view it, if it is true, I don't know, that you know that the planet may be heating up already as well and that other planets are heating up have you seen anything on that i'm curious well it's come up the, before sure the, the, i mean first of all uh, all the planets in the solar system are undergoing constant change that is the nature of things that's not static so of course they're changing but that that really doesn't have much to do with us uh-huh. uh, if you look at the papers, I mean, yes, all these papers that have been published, what you see is that, and in fact, studies have been done on this, not uh, not by me, but I've, I have read the studies, um, 98%, or actually it's probably almost not to 99% of all the scientists in the world are very clear that climate yeah. change is happening and that it is man-made. Yes. Now, there are natural cycles that are also going on, but this is a kind of uh, influence laid on top of the the natural cycles. So the first thing you have to get is that these are false equivalency arguments. The climate Uh denier argument position is a false equivalency. On the one hand, you have thousands of studies each of which are telling us individually and collectively that climate change is upon us. And on the other side, you have a few scientists doing second-class studies 
because when you look at the climate denier studies, the the, the actual studies, you see they're very shabbily done. I mean, uh-huh. it's just shoddy research, and that they and that you've got basically 99% of the scientists who who are looking at the evidence and arriving at one conclusion, and you have a handful, literally a handful of people on the other side, and it's a false equivalency. It's like, you know, the media loves, uh, they treat everything like a sports event. You know, if yeah. there's a winner and a loser, it's like a wrestling match or a boxing match or something or a baseball game. There's one side win, one side loses. And so you create these false equivalencies, and people don't recognize that. You know, I saw one the other day where you had a you had a, a senator who clearly didn't know have any idea what the actual research was on one side, and on the other side you had an environmental scientist who was a man in late middle age who had spent essentially 40 years studying this issue, and the media people interviewing them treated them as if they were had were equal that what they had to say was was of equal weight, and it's absurd. It's a false equivalency, and false equivalencies are a real problem in any kind of presentation of arguments because it's like this. You know, when we were trying to get change in with tobacco, the tobacco yeah. people, you remember, I'm sure, the famous congressional hearing where all the presidents of the tobacco companies said, I do not believe that cigarettes have you know negative health consequences and are addictive and i mean they knew perfectly well that that was a lie but yeah. they said it anyway and it was treated in their in the sort of i don't know what to call it propaganda that they put out as being the equivalent of the medical research that scientists were putting out about what tobacco actually did and the media for a long time couldn't seem to distinguish between the the relative weights of these two arguments so the in the same way the climate denier arguments they're not serious arguments they're just people take positions i don't believe it you know I mean, that's basically <laughs> i'm going to hold my breath till i turn blue because i don't believe it well they think it's part of the manipulation i mean you know having observed the this and by the way we're in overtime now which um we didn't get cut off um if you heard the the, the countdown we're just in overtime which i appreciate um having this this continued discussion here but i i will honor your schedule too stefan um but the the thing is is that it's just so much a part i think of the overall understanding of the world that is basically somebody's out to get us i mean i think that if i were yeah. to to encapsulate that in the smallest way, I mean, it's just whether you know it's the end times or um, you know it's, it's yeah, manipulation yeah. in some way. Somebody's and, out to get us. Yes, yeah, somebody's out to get us, and and that just seems to be the fundamental flaw. The other thing you mentioned that I think is really important is you are a studier of data and how most people in the world don't understand statistics and statistics are continually manipulated for particular reasons for particular agendas and that people don't even know what a false equivalency is they don't know how to to analyze things and yes, this is a real I, I, problem I agree. 
Yeah. It is. And, Willful yeah. ignorance. The fact that we don't, you know, that when you look at American children do not score well on either math or language or literacy. I mean, they we don't do very well. We don't train our kids very well. And so it's hard to be a discerning thinker when you lack the tools to think exactly. with discernment. I mean, you know, it's like asking uh, 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 someone to paint a masterpiece who's never picked up a brush. I mean, you have to, yeah. you know, it's a skill set. You have to learn it. And that's the, the hope of school is that you're going to produce adult individuals. A democracy requires that you have adult individuals who can make discerning decisions. That's why when I wrote The Eight Laws of Change, this book that we've been talking about, um, when I wrote The Eight Laws of Change, I worked for to make it as clear as I could and to get it down to the the actual fundamentals, yeah. which is which is why I began, you know, the interview by saying the key is compassionate, life-affirming wellness. Yes. Everybody gets that. That's very basic. Yes. And and I think that it's easy to lose sight of what that means. And, you know, yes. because other things interfere. Other dogma interferes, you know. That's, yes. that's what yes. I've observed. And, you know, just so many things. The profit motive. I love how you talk about, you know, Profit based in wellness, essentially, that we need to move our culture in that direction. Because, you know, well, we, all the, these. Go ahead. Well, I'm just going to say, you know, I mean, really, to put it in biblical terms, we have, we worship the golden calf. <laughs> I mean, yes. you know, that's, yes. <laughs> that's what Moses went up on the mountain for. We worship the golden calf. Profit is our only social priority. We We are a country, a culture in which profit is the only social priority. And I, what I'm proposing is that we must make wellness the first and social priority. And as long as you produce wellness, you can make all the money you want. You look at a man like Elon Musk, for instance, who's making electric cars and trying to help householders convert so that they can use photovoltaic energy. I mean, all of that is designed to produce wellness. And still, it's making him huge sums of money. So uh, it's not that we're that you can't make money. That's the way it's again. That's one of these false equivalencies. Oh, yeah. you're against making money. You're against capitalism. Yeah. No, I'm not against capitalism. What I am against is making profit the only social priority. I believe, and I think the evidence is overwhelming, that wellness has to be the first priority. Yes. Yes. And. You know, I will say um, that it can really change your life. I mean, I think I am observing more and more people um, who are using their skills for good, that when you look at a job prospect or a contract or whatever, and this is, I will tell you, Stefan, there can be ambiguity here sometimes, and I want listeners to think about this, and I wanted to address this with you, and then I'll let you go because I don't want to hold you too long here because I know you have things you need to do. But it's just, it can really require some serious thought as to where am I going to put my talent for example, what am I going yes. to assist? What am I enabling? And sometimes you're an agent for good and an agent for change, and that's where it gets a little ambiguous. It's like, am I helping 
more by being in this place. I mean, as long as it, some things can be a real mix, and you have to be constantly. It is a learning process for me as yeah. to well, uh, to, to what the you reason want to I wrote the, to. Yes, I mean the reason I wrote the eight laws of change was I wanted to give people the benefit of all of this research I had done to put it into a simple form um, where it really showed you how can you make these choices. Because when you really think about it, yes, there is a, it, is in, it is in the interest of those who are not interested in wellness for there to, cre- to create ambiguity. But if you sit down and think about it for a moment, you will find inevitably that of the choices that are in front of you, one is always more wellness-oriented than the others. Now, maybe it's just a tiny little bit, but the point is that it's those tiny little bits in aggregate that are what make change happen. That's how slavery ended. That's how women got the vote. That's how the environmental movement began. That's how public education was created because people said we're going to make the choice that produces greater wellness. What if you're a force for change within an organization that is a mix? What do you do then, Stefan? Do you because like I'm thinking, okay, here's a good example. Um, you know, you look at how people you talked about statistics about law enforcement, for example. There are many good people, and there, like anything else, there are bad apples. Well, if we only had, you know, more controlling type people in those positions, well, that wouldn't be good. And so you want to have as many really good people doing this work, and we don't want to drive people away from it in any way because that's what we need. And and there could be other industries that are gradually evolving towards more light or so to speak, and if you're involved in one, you know, do you want to leave? If you leave, well, then it's just going to go right south, or do you want to be an influence for good? So so that's where I see some ambiguity when you're making choices, and if you can just help, if you feel like you're making a difference and steering things in a good way, I guess, would be the yeah. question. And, and that's you can the choice, produce, I guess. You can produce wellness happiness spreads like a virus that's what the research shows yes yes if you go into your dry cleaners to pick up your dry cleaning and you smile at the person who is on the other side of the counter you just smile at them and maybe mm-hmm. you say oh i hope you have a nice day right that's simple yes believe it or not and this is again it's based on research Believe it or not, that simple act of kindness will affect the consciousness of the of the person on the other side of the counter and that it will ultimately ripple out six iterations. They will be nicer to the guy that brings the cleaning supplies. I mean, it, it's these little kinds of things. You think, well, they don't make any difference if I smile at the person that um, uh, I'm getting picking up my dry cleaning from. If you if you are going onto the off ramp of a of a freeway, 
and you race to cut somebody off so you can get one car length ahead. That is not productive of wellness if instead you you let the other person go first, for instance. Now, it doesn't seem like it matters much, but it does. All these road rage incidents, they all arise because somebody makes a tiny little choice not to promote wellness. That's it. I mean, it, this is not complicated. It's yeah. it may sound complicated. It may sound that it's not clear, but I assure you, you. But just everybody that's listening to this, if you will make the commitment to to, to make this choice, you're gonna everything you're gonna do from now on, from the day you listen to this show, is going to. First, you're going to be aware that you're making choices, and second, that you are going to choose of the options available, the one that is the most compassionate and life-affirming. You will become an agent of change for the good. Yes. And you will change the world. Yes. Yes. We can do this. It's so true, and it's so simple. You know, I... There is a there is a guy who used to work at our dollar store down the street. He's not there anymore. And that guy, every time he went through the line, he had he would say these there was something about this this smile. He's just a young I don't know, he was like twenty. I think he would say, Enjoy the world or something like I mean he just shined this light, okay? Every time I went through that line, Stefan I felt inspired, and I thought, how many people, because yeah. a lot of people who go through the dollar store are having hard times or whatever. How simple is that? You know, that he was genuine. It wasn't like have a nice day, didn't really mean it, but genuinely friendly. And, you yeah. know, if we could each do this, it spreads. And then, it, you know, I felt better. Maybe I came and did a show, and maybe it was even more uplifting yes. for somebody, just because yes. of some this this really cool guy at the dollar store. It's that That's simple. exactly what the research shows. Yep. That, that That is precisely what the research shows. If every act of kindness and politeness ripples out and that happiness yes. spreads through a community like a virus. Yes, yes, that's it. Be a carrier. Well, <laughs> that's it. I love that. Well, I I so appreciate you spending a little bit more time with us today. Um, and I am just very thankful, Stefan, for all that you're doing in the world because you surely are making a difference. And, and you know, it, it, it's very difficult for me to know how many people really hear, you know, these messages. But you know what? It For me, I feel like every life that we touch matters. And I, I want to yes. invite... Um, I'll give you the chance to tell the audience where they can the best places to go to find out about your work and and um, and let you tell the audience. That. Oh, sure. Well, thank you. That's very nice. Well, you, you can get the book at Amazon or in bookstores. The Eight Laws of Change. You can read my daily web publication, which covers trends that are shaping the future, at www.schwartzreport.net. Or you can go to my personal website, stephanaschwartz.com, where you can get my books and my papers and things. And you can go, if you're interested in my research papers, uh, you can go to academia 
edu and you can get all of the papers they're up there for free to download so the eight laws of change www.schwartzreport.net or my personal site www.stephanaschwartz.com and i thank you very much susan for for letting me do that and i enjoyed the conversation oh well thank you so much i really enjoyed it too and i really appreciated your book, and it's helping me personally already. Help me make a decision Good. this morning, as a matter of fact, the the pledge, well, just a small one, you know, and I thought, you know what? It's working already. <laughs> so thank you works. for that. Okay. <laughs> it works right away. I can vouch for the audience that, that it you can just put it in motion immediately. So, um, so yes, thank you so much, Stefan, for everything you're doing. All right. Well, thank you. You have a great day. You too. Take care. And I will tell the audience that is absolutely true. I had to make a small business-oriented decision this morning, and I realized, you know, um, this particular path is a little more fear-based, and no, no, I'm going to keep this on this path. And I just, it was an adjustment, and I just realized I was, steering away from fear and it was that simple i remembered the pledge from the book and if you get Stephen's book and i encourage you to get it the eight laws of change how to be an agent of personal and social transformation um, you too can see how it makes a difference immediately and there's a lot there's a wealth of information in this book that i know you will appreciate so just real quick since we're in overtime here really fast I'm just going to remind you of the next show. I am going to be on the air Monday again, and I have um, Christopher Vasey coming on to talk about the spiritual mysteries of blood, kind of an unusual show on Monday. We're just continuing to explore, um, and that's going to be Monday, December 7th, rather pivotal historical day, um, 12 p.m. Pacific, the same time as today. And I've got a full slate of shows next week, um, so... Um, go to FrontierBeyondFear.com to see the archive and all the upcoming shows coming up. And thank you so much, everyone, for being here today. Thank you to Blog Talk Radio. I saw we were out on that front page again, and I'm always appreciative because I know that that involves some editorial choice on Blog Talk Radio's part, and um, I do appreciate that always. So thank you, everyone. I will see you on Monday, and enjoy the archive in the interim over the weekend. There's a lot of good stuff in there. Talk to you soon. Thank you.